to understand when we're talking about religion in the medieval period and this is true for the dark ages right the way up until certainly the reformation and beyond is that religion is not a matter of belief it's a matter of knowledge these people do not believe that god exists they know that god exists it is a simple matter of fact that god is there the saints are there hell is real heaven is real and the arbiter of what is god's will is the catholic church and the catholic church is religion for everybody in western europe so what does that actually mean well it means that the catholic church fulfills a wide number of roles in medieval society obviously there's religion it translates God's will and God's word into a way that people can understand. Then there is also the matter of law. The church is heavily involved in law insofar as they have their own courts, they have their own canon law, they deal with their own issues without recourse to the temporal rulers, the kings and the queens. Also, a lot of knowledge is held in churches, monasteries and cathedrals, which makes them places that can tell you what the law is. Then, there's politics. Now, in England at this time, you have to remember that the archbishops are part of the Witan, and they advise the king. That's before 1066. After 1066, the archbishops tend to be close advisors, and of course in some cases if you're thinking about Bishop Odo of Bayer, relatives of the Norman kings. So again, they're involved very much in the politics of the kingdom. They're also involved in wider politics. Remember, the church is an international organization. They are not simply based in one country. So the church has relations with all of these different countries and it also has its own political agenda which sometimes brings it into conflict with the temporal rulers. Education, as we've already discussed, is a major part of the church. After all, almost everybody that's literate in this period is a churchman. Also, books are copied by hand. There is no printing press and most of the scribes work for the church. Therefore, the main publisher of books is the church. Literally, the church controls knowledge. They decide which books are available, and they decide which knowledge is available to people. Medicine, law, not just theology. The church is knowledge in this period. And then finally, the one that everybody always forgets is economics. The church is massively important in economic terms when you're talking about medieval society. Not only 
does the church own a great deal of land, everybody pays 10% of their money to the church, a tithe. That is a constant influx of money coming into the church's coffers. As we mention later, pilgrims, there's another source of income that's coming in. So the church is rich, and the church spends those riches building cathedrals, building abbeys, building monasteries. This creates employment and work for people across the country. So that's the different areas in which the church works. But the one that has the greatest impact on you if you're living in Norman England is your parish priest, your parish clergy, the village priest. Now, as we discussed when we talked about the design of the village, the church is really the centre of the village. To borrow a very modern term, the church is also the centre of community cohesion. It is the thing that pulls the village society together. Everybody goes there on a Sunday. Everybody goes there on holy days. Everybody goes there for weddings and funerals and christenings. When you go on a Sunday in the morning, you will have your services. Then in the afternoon, there may be some games, there may be some talking and chat. And remember, your village priest is plugged into this very large organization. And he becomes a source of knowledge and news about what is happening in the world and what is happening in the wider kingdom. So please don't underestimate the importance of the village priest to the idea of communication and to the idea of village life. Remember, he sees everybody. Everyone admits their sins to him under the seal of confession. And remember, he tends to the sick. He tends to the needy. He sees everyone. He knows everything that is going on. The priest is the heart of the village. Beyond your normal worship in the local church, there's always those more pious people who may want to go a little further. Literally go a little further. I'm talking, of course, about pilgrimage. A pilgrimage is any journey in which you go to see a shrine or any place of religious significance. You could go for a number of reasons. You could go because the saint is known for healing people and you have a disease which you wish to be healed of. You could go as an act of penance. You've committed a sin and you are sent there to expiate that sin. From a practical point of view, pilgrimage generates income. These people are traveling. They need feeding. They need somewhere to sleep. They need somewhere to stay. And also, once they arrive at the location, there are often ways that the shrine itself can get funds out of them through offerings or tithes or various other means. The point is this. Pilgrimage is big business. It generates a lot of income and it generates a lot of power and it generates a lot of influence. For more of a discussion about the importance of pilgrimage and the way that saints and their relics influence this, I direct you to the next podcast in the sequence, which is about Durham Cathedral, which is your site survey for the 2018 exam. Please have a listen to that, which will give you a very, very good sense of how this really works in practice. 
So that's an overview, if you like, of the church. That's what it's like. Now we need to dig into the specifics of the church in Norman England and the relationship between the Norman kings and the church. And to do that, we need to rewind all the way back to 1066. In 1066, William goes to the Pope for help in blessing his invasion of England. And if you remember, the reason he gives to the Pope is that the church in England is corrupt and only William will be able to reform it. Now there's a couple of things to unpick there. The first one is, was the church actually corrupt? And then the second one is, what reforms did William bring in once he arrived in England? So we'll deal with them in order. When we're talking about corruption in the Catholic Church in the medieval period, really we're talking about one of four things. First, there is the idea of pluralism, and that is where a churchman holds more than one high office in the church. The second is simony, and that's the idea of selling these positions to people. Remember, If you have the opportunity to get a high position in the church, there's an awful lot of money associated there. There is a lot of ways to enrich yourself. And also, if the alternative is fighting to death in some muddy field somewhere or plowing another muddy field somewhere, a life in the church starts to look relatively attractive. So you can see how they'd go for a lot of money. The next one is nepotism. And that's the idea of giving high offices in the church to your relatives. Nowadays we use it to mean friends as well, but back then the main focus was relatives, simply because priests were supposed to be celibate. They weren't supposed to marry, they weren't supposed to have sex, and they weren't supposed to have children. But you always get a few, don't you? And they did have sex, and they did get married, and they did have children, and then they would give those children positions in the church. So... Was the church in England corrupt? Well, we can answer that question by simply looking at one example. And the example we're going to look at is Archbishop Stigand. Now, if you remember him, he was the archbishop in England at the time of the invasion in 1066. And when William was crowned on Christmas Day, 1066, he refused to be crowned by Stigand because Stigand was corrupt. What was the exact nature of his corruption? Well, he was guilty of pluralism. He held more than one office. Now, here's the kicker. If the Archbishop of Canterbury, the leader of the church in England, is certainly guilty of corruption, what does that suggest about the rest of the church? So, William sticks to his promise and he reforms the church. The person he gets to do this is Lanfranc, his personal spiritual advisor, who he appoints Archbishop of Canterbury to replace Stigand. And Lanfranc determines that he is going to bring the church more in line with the reforms of Pope Gregory VII, who is the current pope at this time. And this is all about making the church more honest, making the church more pure. 
And this is what Lanfranc sets out to do. And along the way, he makes an awful number of changes. We'll talk about those changes in a second, but first off, I just want to flag, do remember this idea of Pope Gregory trying to reform the church, because that is going to figure into some of the arguments between William II Anselm, and it's going to feed into this idea of the investiture controversy. But I will come back to that in just a second. So what are the changes that Lanfranc makes to the church in England? Well, first off, there's the idea of bishops. Now, this is less to do with Lanfranc purifying the church than it is to William trying to keep control of England. Because what happens is he replaces all of the English bishops with Norman bishops. Now, first off, if the church is corrupt, replacing them helps to reform it. Fine. But secondly, putting Normans in those positions of power really helps to cement Norman control of England. Then they make some changes to architecture. Now, we will talk about Romanesque architecture again when we look at Durham Cathedral, but at this point it is worth just pointing out that all of the new churches and cathedrals and abbeys and monasteries they build are built in the Norman style. And again, that sends a very powerful message to the English. They change the organisation of the church. They make it much more streamlined and they bring it much more into line with how things are organised in Rome and on the continent. They organise it into a series of dioceses, each of which is governed over by an archbishop. They also deal with some legal issues, such as the use of church courts. Now, all of these changes added up do completely restructure the way the church works, but to the ordinary man in the field in Norman England, they're unnoticeable. Because remember, for the vast majority of people in Norman England, their interaction with the church is through their parish priest, and he does not change. His service does not change. What he's doing to help the community does not change. So the key thing I would say to you is this. Remember all of these changes. Remember the structural changes that the Normans bring. But also remember that to the ordinary man and woman in Norman England, these changes are completely unnoticeable. And that brings us, I suppose onto the political changes. And this is where we start to dig into slightly more this idea of international politics. When Lanfranc dies, William II, who is on the throne at that point, does not replace him immediately. Instead, he takes over the, the role, I suppose, of running the church in England because he is short of money. He's dealing with an invasion from the Scots, he's dealing with unrest on the Welsh borders, he needs money. And in order to get that money, he keeps the money that's coming in that should be going to the Archbishop to run the church. This causes a great deal of conflict between him and Pope Gregory. Now, at this point, Pope Gregory is also involved in an argument with Henry IV of France. And this argument is what is known as the investiture controversy. 
And really, the only thing you need to know about this is, it is over who is allowed to invest people as Archbishop. Basically, appoint people as Archbishop. Previously, kings have tended to do it. They use it to reward their followers. They do it to ensure loyalty. The Pope is under the impression that he, as head of the Church, should be the one who decides who is an Archbishop. And this argument escalates to the point where the Pope excommunicates, that is, casts out of the Church, the King of France. This is the investiture controversy. This is the investiture controversy, which lasts from 1075 to 1122. And it basically comes to an end with the understanding that the Pope is the person who appoints all bishops and archbishops. Where does this leave William? Well, William ends up having to ask Bishop Anselm to take over as Archbishop of Canterbury. He becomes ill, and remember, at this point, faith, religion, is not a matter of belief. It is a matter of knowledge. He knows that he has become ill because God is displeased with him. Therefore, to ensure that God is no longer displeased with him, he gets Anselm to become his new Archbishop of Canterbury. So that covers most of the changes which are made to the church, but it still leaves one important religious element out to one side. And that is the idea of monasticism, the idea of monks in monasteries. Monks are churchmen who have separated themselves away from life from the world from the temporal existence and they have put themselves aside from worldly concerns that they may better dedicate themselves to the worship of God they work because in working in suffering they partake of the suffering of Christ on the cross and every piece of work they do is an act of worship when they work in the gardens of the monastery, that in itself is work dedicated to the greater glory of God. When they copy a book out in the scriptorum of the monastery, that too is a prayer, it is an act of worship. Monasteries have been around for some considerable time. Monasticism as a movement starts with St. Benedict in Italy, and soon there's so many people following it that St. Benedict has to draw up a rule book, and the rule of St. Benedict, it becomes the, the constitution, if you like, the, the rule book for all monks that follow him. English monasticism in the Anglo-Saxon period is uh, very influenced by the Celtic Church. You get an awful lot of monasteries in Ireland and Scotland and Lindisfarne, which we'll discuss again when we get to at St. Cuthbert and Durham Cathedral. The life of a monk is not an easy one. Uh, there are a number of services a day, you're not getting a great deal of sleep, and you're spending a great deal of time in prayer and quiet contemplation. But still, there are some who feel that the life is not severe enough, that people are not dedicating themselves to the worship of Christ enough. And so, it starts in a monastery in Cluny in France, and you get the Cluniac monks. And these are the ones who cleave to a very strict definition of Benedict's rule. And these are the monks that William invites over to reinvigorate monasticism in 
England. And they start to cede more and more monasteries. So the Norman period brings a huge explosion in the number of abbeys and the number of monasteries being built, but also a very different flavour of monasticism, one which is much less involved in the wider life of the community. One impact of this is on schooling and education. Before the Norman invasion, church schools were largely based in monasteries and the lessons were conducted by monks and by nuns. After the Norman reforms to monasticism, children are no longer allowed in the monasteries. Therefore, this requires the establishment of schools and universities outside of the bounds of the church, which leads to the growth of the grammar school. So you can see that these reforms to monasticism have quite a long-ranging impact on things. We'll pick up a little more about what monasticism means and how it practically affects the growth of a holy place, again, in the next podcast when we have a look at Durham Cathedral. We've covered quite a lot of ground there. So just to recap it all, you need to be aware of the role that the church played in medieval England. You need to be aware of the role of the village priest. You need to be aware of the importance of pilgrimages. And you need to be aware of the reasons why the Normans felt that the church in England needed reformation. You need to be aware of the reforms and changes they actually brought in. And you need to be aware of the people that are involved. You need to keep Stigand, Lanfranc, William, William II, Pope Gregory, Anselm all straight in your head. Keep that through line of the reforms there and try and think to yourself about what's important. What impact does it have? And always, always remember that the impact that there is is very, very slight when it comes to the ordinary man in the field. Thank you very much for listening. Good luck in your exams.